am, I want to talk to you about leadership today. That was what the message is about. And it just struck me that this weekend we've seen a lot of good leadership. Um, at this play, Fiddler on the Roof, we had, a, I think, 10 people from our church that participated in it. And Mindy did had just phenomenal leadership uh, directing that whole production. Um, Kathleen and the team that she pulled together for the Hog Stravaganza, phenomenal leadership. And then this Sunday, people arriving and there's no power and then they get power and there's no internet and they're scrambling. And you don't realize, like, the team that stands up here and sings, like, for 45 minutes before that, they're like, ah, 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 and then they have to get up there and be like, hi! You know? <laughs> and still, like, be calm and cheerful and, and pretend like they have their wits about them when they feel like they don't. And um, that is phenomenal leadership. And so I want to thank you all who are on the worship team and back in the tech booth for your leadership this morning. So I, the question I want to start with is, when do you trust leadership? And there's no right answer I'm looking for here, but, like, what causes you to trust leadership or what kind of circumstances when do you when do you trust leadership so you're like okay yeah i believe them i'm willing to follow them past history, past history. what kind of past history yeah successful leadership what what qualifies as successful leadership when you feel like they care about you Okay, when, when you feel like they care about you and the people around more than just themselves, yeah? Okay. What else? When they trust you. When they trust you? That's that's a good insight too. They just don't think they know it all, but they're willing to listen and and believe in you and think you can do it too and yeah. Okay. Anything else? When they see the big picture. When they see the big picture? Okay. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, they don't get so focused on one little thing that other things fall to the wayside. All right, um, what causes you not to trust or doubt? What causes you to doubt leadership? Incompetence. Incompetence. <laughs> All right, anything else? Okay, I heard two, look, you first. Broken promises. All right. Yeah, that's a good one. And some somebody over here. Lack of confidence. A lack of confidence. Like if they don't believe in themselves, why should you believe in them? Kind of. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. Mood swings and personality flaws. <laughs> so like consistency, right? Yeah. Like, do you know what person is going to show up? Right. Yeah. Okay. That's a good, that's a good one. Um, I think one, one of the things that causes us to doubt leadership is hard times, right? When things get difficult, just in general, we tend to doubt our leaders. Today's message is, is about leadership and what makes a good leader and, and how to be a, a leader worth following in difficult times. Not just the good times, because we want that consistency, right? We don't want to just be the good leader when everything is good. But even when things are chaotic like they were this morning, how do you still get up and smile and keep your calm, right? Like we saw exemplified for us today. Um, which, by the way, I was not a part of that. Like, I just roll in here on Sunday morning and there. <laughs> Like, oh, you guys are scrambling. How's it going? <laughs> They're taking care of it. They're so good. Anyways, it's about how how to be a good leader worth following in difficult times. Because you are a leader. You are a leader. In Genesis one, verse twenty six. It, it says this. This is about the creation of the world and when God decides to make humankind. And he says, let us make mankind in our image 
in our likeness so that they may rule. Now, we don't use that word rule a lot today anymore because we think of like kings and dictators. and it, I don't know, it kind of has a, a negative connotation for some people. But it just, it means so that they may lead. God leads. You are made in the image of the leader of the universe. Why? So that you will lead. And you are a leader whether you recognize it or not. At the very minimum, you lead your own life. Like your life is a direct result of your own leadership. And some people will say, well, no, I like my life is a direct result of what has happened to me. <laughs> right? Look, it, we can't deny some people are dealt an easier hand in life than others. But we all choose what to do with our hand and how to play it. And you have made a thousand decisions that led you to where you are right now in life. Decisions about where to go, who to hang out with, who, who to be friends with, who to fall in love with. You know, that, that is a choice, contrary to what Disney may say. Uh, about, I'm thinking about fairy tales. Like you just see, you're like, oh, we're in love. No, no, it's a choice. You, you choose who to hang out with. You choose who to give your attention to. You can start to tell when you're attracted to someone. You choose whether or not you want to go down that road. It's a choice. And we make so many choices. And the biggest choice that we make over and over is what we give our mind to. Because what we focus on will directly impact our life. Our, our life is always a result of what we focus on the most. Always. So at the very minimum... You're a leader of yourself. And, and you have, and we have to ask ourselves this these questions from time to time. Like, am I doing a good job leading myself? I think we could all get a little better, right? And so this morning I want us all to get a little better together, okay? Because we not only lead ourselves, we also lead others. You're made in the image of God, which means your very presence leads. Whether you realize it or not, you walk into a room and your presence has influence. That's all leadership is. It's just influence. You come in here this morning and how you act either encourages other people to participate or is a distraction to people. Like Your presence always is influencing whether you realize it or not. And so what direction does your presence influence? Is it influencing things for the better? Is it influencing people to be apathetic? Is it influencing people to go downhill? We all lead. We believe that God created us in his image, not only so we will lead, but he wants to help us lead. <laughs> he wants to help us lead better. And, and the... He does it in many ways, but the greatest way is by sharing his wisdom with us right here. We believe that God inspired human writers to write down his wisdom. And God not only directed what they would write, but he directed that it would be preserved for us today. And so today we're going to look at God's wisdom in the book of James. I want you to open your Bibles to James um, we're going to do a real quick overview. So we'll start in James 1. And I need you to get out your Bibles because I'm going to ask you questions. And I need you to look up answers. I will make it easy. I will tell you where to find the answer. Okay? But if you don't look it up, I will just stare at you until you do. Because <laughs> I am perfectly comfortable being awkward up here. But no, no. It's because I don't want you just to depend on what I say. You need to learn to seek out God's wisdom for yourself. Okay, so we're going to practice what we preach and what we teach. We're going to look it up. James chapter 1, if you grab one of the Bibles in the baskets, just use a post-it note and you'll be there, alright? So James, he is writing to Jewish Christians who are persecuted. They're going through hard times. And he writes to them to tell them how to lead themselves during hard times. Relevant? Yeah, very, very relevant. And in chapter 1, he, he lays out his premise, which, which is real simple. He says, look, when you don't know what to do, when you lack wisdom, just ask God, and he will give you wisdom. And he'll give it to you generously. 
doesn't matter if you better screw up or whatever. It doesn't matter. He will give you wisdom. But, what is the but? What does he say? You must ask in faith and believe and not doubt. And he goes on to talk about don't be double-minded. Don't listen to what God says and be like, meh. <laughs> you know, and then do your own thing. He says, listen, don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. That, that's chapter one. All right, that, that was easy. And then um, he goes on through the rest of the letter and he starts to give examples of different kinds of double-mindedness that we do. So if you flip to chapter two, you'll see a heading on that chapter. Now, just so you know, the Bible is, it was Old Testament written Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek. It's translated to English for us. Those chapter numbers, those big numbers, they're not original. Neither are the little verse numbers and neither are the headings. Okay? They're just helpful for us to know where we are and what we're looking at. So, Chapter 2, there's a heading that kind of tells you what chapter 2 is about, right? And James talks about the double-mindedness of... Favoritism. Favoritism, yes. Very good. The double-mindedness of favoritism, that we favor ourselves over other people. And he gives this example about like wanting the best seat for ourselves and not caring where other people sit. And so my daughter was in Fiddler on the Roof. Um, this weekend. And Friday night, we got there like before the doors opened. Right? We were there, we were the first one in, and we like saved this whole row for our family. Like Eric's mom and sisters and my parents, like we saved the whole row. Now, Angie was also in the play. And she had a much bigger part and did a marvelous job. Did I save a seat for her parents? Sure didn't. <laughs> I didn't at all. It didn't even cross my mind. Why? Because we favor ourselves. We all do this. We want what's best for ourselves, and we don't think about how what taking what's best for us means other people don't have it. We don't even think about it. And, and James says that kind of favoritism, if you look at the next heading in chapter 2, look at the next heading. He says that kind of favoritism leads to faith without, without deeds. Yeah. Where we say things like, oh yeah, we believe God loves everybody, but we don't treat everybody that way. We, we say, oh yeah, God, God can provide all your needs, but we don't act that way. We act like God has this limited amount of resources. To bless people with. And so when we get our blessing, we got to hold on to it. That's how we act. And James says, your faith without deeds is useless. If you look right under that heading, verse 14. It says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? If we say to Shane, Shane, we hope your sister gets better, and we do nothing about it, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Our faith without our double standards, that favoritism, it makes our faith useless. Now look over at chapter 3, all right? James, he then starts to talk about another kind of double-mindedness that we struggle with. What does that heading say? The double-mindedness of the tongue, our speech, yeah. Find the little number 10, verse 10, under chapter 3. It says, out of our mouths comes what? Praising and cursing. Should this be? No. No. He says, how can we praise the creator and then curse 
the ones who are made in the Creator's image. Pastor Keith, and he, he preached an excellent message on chapter 3 last week. I listened to it online. I hope you listened to it online. I want to take another look at chapter 3, but through this lens of leadership and, and what it says about who is a good leader, how to recognize a good leader, and how to be a good leader, okay? So we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to pick out a few verses from chapter 3 about leadership. Um, we'll start with verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, okay? Not many of you should become teachers. Some translations will say should be presume to be teachers. Not many of you should become or presume to be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. James, of course, he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted. They're going through hard times, and they're naturally doubting their leaders. You know, they're naturally down. Things are not going well. Has anybody noticed? Maybe they should listen to my ideas. This word teacher from the Greek, it, it means teacher, but it has, a, it has a deeper connotation that we kind of lose in the English. It, it has this connotation of being an expert in a particular field. And so because you're an expert, people should listen to you. You command that kind of respect, right? And so James is saying, look, now many of you should presume to be experts. Because you'll be judged more strictly. Have you, have you ever had a time where you had a leader and you thought, they had no, no clue what they're talking about? And if they would just listen to me, things would be better. You know? No, nobody? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've got a few honest people in this room. <laughs> we do that with our bosses. We do that with teachers. You know, we do that with our parents or, or whoever the most influential family member is. We do this all the time. We're like, man, why does everybody follow them? You know, that popular kid at school that has everybody wrapped up in what's on TikTok and is so silly. It's like, why do people listen to them? If people would just listen to me, things would go so much better. That's what James is dealing with here. This is what he says. Not many of you should be presumed to be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. So yes, your leaders stumble. Your boss, your teacher, your parents, your whoever, you know, they, they stumble. And if you take their spot, if you get their audience, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to stumble too. So if we all stumble, does that mean none of us are eligible to be leaders? No. So who's eligible to be a leader? We'll keep reading. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Okay, let me break that down. Because it sounds like he's just conflicted. He said two different things. He said on one side, and hey, we all stumble. And then on the other hand, he says, well, some people are perfect. No, okay. He said, we're all able, we all stumble. And it's this, it's this picture of like, you know, we're all walking around and we all stumble. But the ones who can control what they say when they stumble, they're able to like write themselves up and keep going. The ones who stumble and they can't control what they say just go (laughs) head over heels. It's not that they're perfect and they never stumble. It's that they control their speech and they can recover and keep their body in check. He goes on in the next verse and he uses the example of a horse and putting bits in the mouths of horses and how we control horses with a bit in their mouth. I used to do a lot of horseback riding. I, I love it. I don't get the opportunity much anymore. But on a few occasions, I've been on a horse that stumbled. Um, in fact, one time I was on a horse that saw a snake reared and like full speed gallop through the trees, off the trail, you know. And um, I am not as strong as a horse. 
<laughs> Not even close. But I was able to slow that horse down, bring it back around, get it back on, tra- on the trail. Why? Because I controlled the bit in its mouth. And that's the picture that James is painting. And he's like, when you stumble, who controls the bit in your mouth? When you stumble, who controls the bit in your mouth? And does the one who controls it, do they write you? Or do they let you just fall head over heels? Let's skip ahead to verse 9. You see the little tiny 9. With the tongue of praise, with our tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. And for some of you, that right away is really convicting. And for some of you, you think, well, I don't really curse people. All right. Cursing someone does not just mean cussing them out. That's a form of cursing, but there are other ways to curse. This word in the Greek, it means to say something where you wish for someone's downfall. And you might say, well, I've never wished for someone's downfall. I've never was like, I hope they get fired, or I hope, you know, I've never said that. All right, well, if, if I go to my coworkers and I complain about my boss, and I say, oh my goodness, he's so incompetent. He, he just has no idea what it's like for us. His expectations are so unreasonable. And I, I just say those kind of things. Am I not saying things to encourage others not to follow him? And if others are discouraged from following that leader, am I not hoping for the downfall of their leadership? It's a curse. When we complain to our kids about our spouse, it's a curse. When we complain about our parents to our siblings or, you know, complain about a teacher to fellow students, it's a curse. We are encouraging others not to follow them and hoping for the downfall of their leadership. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. I don't know why the NIV translates it salt. It means bitter. They, might, they probably just assume bitter water is salt water. But it means, the word is bitter. Can a bitter spring produce sweet water? Alright? What James is saying is negative speech cannot produce positive results. If you have anger or bitterness in your heart and it comes out your mouth, it will not produce something good. And we have a hard time with this because we can produce some good short-term results with negative speech. Or what, like if we yell at our kid, we can get them to clean up their room. But in the long term, it is going to not produce anything good. It's going to produce a breakdown of relationship, breakdown of the self-esteem, breakdown. You cannot produce good things with negative speech. Negative speech can only produce negative things. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Who's a good leader? Who do you think? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy, that's that same word that he used to describe the salt springs. If you harbor bitter envy, And selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. I had to think about this one. 
about how, how, why would anyone first of all boast about having selfish ambition? And then why would they deny it? Like how do you boast about being, having selfish ambition and then deny it at the same time? Well, the first thing, um, and I heard someone else say this, Jen Wilkin, not all ambition is selfish, right? There's ambition to exalt other people. And um, like my mom, she has an ambition to open a safe house for abused women. That's a good ambition. Selfish ambition, we want to exalt ourselves. And I had to pray and think about this. And I'm like, God, well, how, 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 why would we boast about selfish ambition and deny it? And it came to me, the reason why we do this is because we use good ambition as a cloak for our selfish ambition. Where we say we do things to help others, but we are really exalting ourselves. As parents, how many times have you said, well, I'm doing it for the kids. But we do it for ourselves. Or at work, I'm doing it for my students. I'm doing it for the patients. You know, but we do it for ourselves. We use good ambition as a cloak for our selfish ambition. And that's how we simultaneously boast about our ambition and deny it. Because the first person we sell that lie to is ourselves. Like every politician who stays in power to serve the people has bought their own lie. Cloaking their selfish ambition with good ambition that they say of helping people. Every parent who's a workaholic saying they're doing it to provide for the family at the same time they're neglecting their family. They've bought their own lie. Every spouse who neglects their marriage because they want to give their kids the best childhood ever bought their own life. Every employer who overworks employees because we want to provide excellent customer service bought their own life. We deny our selfish ambition at the very same time we boast about. And, and James says that if we harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, we shouldn't boast about it or deny that that's what's really happening. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Can we just... um? For a moment, confess that sometimes as Christians, we use the good ambition of exalting God to cloak our own selfish ambition. You know, like, we want the best worship, the best music, we want the best preacher, you know, we want the most effective church. And sometimes it's for God's glory, and sometimes it's for our own. Um, last week, I went to a church leadership conference in Alabama. And it, it was unlike any Christian conference I've ever been to. And I've been to a lot. I've probably, I don't know, been to 20 to 30 um, leadership conferences hosted by mega churches. And... Um, not all of them, but a lot of them follow the same kind of pattern where they bring in all these people who've been very successful in ministry and are experts on leadership and you come and you listen to them speak and they say some helpful things and if you want to know more, they just happen to have published a book that year that is for sale in the lobby. And, um, and it's good. It's, it is helpful. But they also pocket a lot of money. And they raise their profile to be a nationally known and sometimes internationally known speaker and author, right? And so um, after a while, I just kind of stopped going to those kind of things. But I got this email a couple months ago that said, hey, if you will fly down to Alabama and go to this megachurch conference, we'll pay your church $1,000. 
I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I had never heard of this conference. I got online and looked it up to see who the speakers were, and they did not list any speakers. Like there's, I'm like, what the heck? What? I'm like, okay. So I, I get down there, and I come in the doors, and they give me a book back. Give me a book back. And you go and you sit down, and there's probably about a thousand other people there attending this conference. And the, the lead pastor stands up, and he says, look, um, we're a growing church. And we've seen thousands of lives transformed through the power of Jesus Christ. And we just want to see more lives transformed, but we can't reach any everybody. So we want to help you be as effective as you can be. And, and so everything we know, we're going to teach you. Every strategy we have, um, we're going to teach you. And, and we're going to give you all of our resources. Like, if you want our children's curriculum, you can have it. If you want our leadership development curriculum, you can have it. Like, your discipleship, it's all there for free online. Um, And and every session I went to, they put books in my book bag for free. I came home with a really heavy suitcase. (laughs) And and I've never experienced this before. And... And the pastor, he also said, he goes, you know, everybody comes here because they want the success we have. They're like huge, 25 campuses and all this stuff. He's like, they all want the success we have. And they want our discipleship tools and all these things. But they, the one thing that makes us most successful, they never take away. He goes, and that's our prayer. That we spend inorn- just tons of time in prayer. And he goes, so we're going to not just teach you. We're going to spend time in prayer while we're here. And that's when I thought, I think I'm in the right place. <laughs> I think I'm in the right place. But it was just so refreshing. They fed us. I mean, they, they were just so generous with us. Um, last Sunday, we hosted the fifth Sunday gathering here. And um, I love the fifth Sunday gathering. It is, what it is, whenever there's five Sundays in a month, um, different Christian churches in Albion will gather together at six o'clock and have a worship service. And a different church will host each time and a different church will provide the pastor, the preacher. And so we hosted this last time. And, um, Pastor April, some, some now? Some row. Some row, thank you. Um, from Leggett Chapel preached. She did a phenomenal job. Phenomenal job. And um, I think the fifth Sunday service is so good. One, because it's good for us to experience different kinds of worship. Um, it's also good for us to experience different kinds of preaching. And Pastor April preaches way different than I do. Um, it was good. Um, but afterwards, we, we meet and we have, you know, share food together. And, um, and I was talking to different people. We got so many compliments on our building. Like, so many compliments. And it struck me before, but it really struck me then. Um, Most of the churches that participate in this fifth Sunday, they are tiny churches in the poorest neighborhoods in Albion. And... um, And I just thought, when we gather with them, do we favor ourselves? Like, like we're no megachurch, okay? We're we're not. Megachurches have all these strategies and super effective things they do, and and we do some, but there's a... I mean, we don't even live stream our services yet, you know? Like, there's a lot of areas of effectiveness we can grow in. But in Albion... Kind of a mega church. Like, there's not a lot of churches that have more financial resources than we do. There might be a few, but not many. And, and do we favor ourselves and think, well, God has given us all of these resources because we are the best people to reach the people of Albion. And when, when we gather with these poor little churches in Albion, do we just say, hey, God bless you, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, and do nothing to help them? Um, and, you know, as, as they talked about our building, I just thought, well, what if, 
Once a year, we like adopted a little church and went and painted or did some landscaping for them or something. I don't know what would be helpful, you know? Pastor April, she actually lives in Toledo, Ohio. And every Sunday morning, she drives all the way up to preach in her church and of like 20 people and then all the way back. And last Sunday, she stayed to preach in the fifth Sunday service, which meant she would have been driving back at like 8 p.m. And this is how I found out, because she just was like, I'm so thankful. Like a few, some people in my congregation, they chipped in so I could have a hotel room. And I just thought, I wonder if someone in our congregation has a spare bedroom. You know, or a mother-in-law suite that's not being used. And that she could come up on Saturday and spend the night and like be refreshed for her congregation or... Or take a nap after she preaches before she drives all the way back. You know? Like, and it would be better because if it was someone in our congregation, then she wouldn't have to be a pastor. Right? Like, if she stays with someone in her church, she's still on duty. <laughs> but if she stays with somebody in our church, she could just go in a room and close the door and crash. I don't, I don't know what all God is calling us to do. But I think we need to take this seriously of not showing favoritism to ourselves. That God has given us all these resources because we're the best ones to keep them. But maybe how, how do we share? And how do we have the kind of faith that we know if we are generous with others, God is still going to be generous with us. And still provide for us. There are two kinds of wisdom in this world. The kind that is good for exalting ourselves and the kind that is good for exalting others. And as a church, we need to decide what kind of wisdom do we want to be good at. And we also as individuals need to decide in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, what kind of wisdom do we want to be good at? Do we want to be good at the wisdom that exalts ourselves, or do we want to be good at the wisdom that exalts others? Let's keep reading. Verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, Considerate, submissive. Let's just pause on that word. Wisdom that is from God is submissive. Jesus was submissive to his Father's will. Right? Submissive means we don't insist on our own preferences. That we are willing to follow the leader God puts over us. And submissive also means that when we are the leader, we submit to the cares and concerns of the people under us. Submission goes both ways. And that you are considerate of those that you lead and merciful with them. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, Full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. You see how he's tying this back in? Like, how can you say to someone who's hurting, hey, go in peace, be warm and well fed? Are you being impartial? Are you being sincere? If you do nothing about it when you can? No. You need to be impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers, not peacekeepers. <laughs> peacekeepers, what do they want to do? They just don't want anyone to rock the boat, right? You just want to keep everybody calm, everybody satisfied. But peacekeepers, they don't necessarily deal with the problem. Peacemakers, they recognize the problem. They don't pretend like there's no problem. And they have the courage to enter into it and solve it. Don't think you can solve problems, though, by complaining about them. Like James already pointed out, from 
bitter springs doesn't come sweet water. Negative speech does not produce good results. So instead of complaining, we need to acknowledge problems in a way with positive and hopeful speech that tells people, hey, we can get better together. We can do this. So with your family, do you just complain about their shortcomings? You're like, why do they do this? You always do this. Why didn't you knit? You know, is that your speech? Or do you point out all the good things to do? And then give tips of like, well, you know, I think we could do a little bit better in this area. Negative speech cannot produce positive results. But if you sow in peaceful speech, you will reap a harvest of righteousness. I started this message by talking about leadership. To be a good leader, to lead yourself well, you first have to think and speak about yourself well. Some of you say horrible things about yourselves. You are made in the image of God. And when you think and say horrible things about yourself, you are not only cutting yourself down, you are cutting down the creator in whose image you're created. You are made in the image of God. He made you good. You're not perfect, okay? But you're good. And to lead yourself well, you need to start thinking and saying good things about yourself. To lead others well, you need to start thinking and saying good things about them. And to them, um, one of you pointed out, you follow a leader who believes in you, right? You want your spouse to get better, you have to talk to them in a way that shows them that you believe that they can get better. Same thing with your kids, the people you work with. I am... I've been a pastor for 25 years now. Um, I've gotten a lot of feedback in those 25 years. And I'm thankful for it because it makes me better. And I need to keep getting better. So I need more feedback. But there have been different times throughout the past 25 years that someone will come to me and say something like, I may sound like a jerk when I say this, but... And I immediately think, then don't say it! You know? Like, if you haven't taken the time to figure out how to give your feedback in a non-jerky way, why should I take the time to listen? And my friends, the same is true of your kids, of your spouse, of the people you work with, of other people in this church. If you do not take the time to figure out how to give your feedback in a non-jerky way, they will not take the time to listen. They may be standing there, but they're zoning you out. It's in one ear and out the other. We don't put blinders on to problems, but we must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That means when you see a problem, you you pause. And the first question is, God, is this a problem I need to address? Because not all problems are worth addressing. And not all problems are to be addressed by you in that moment. Right? I struggle with that. I see something I want to talk about, and sometimes I have the worst timing. Pause. God, is this a problem you want me to address? And if it is then the first thing you do is learn more. You be quick to listen. Listen to the other side of the story. Why did this happen? And not in a, why did this happen? But like, you know, oh, what happened here? Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. And when it is your time to speak, you you pray and say, God, how do you want me to speak? And you take the time to prayerfully choose your words. Earlier I asked you, who controls the bit in your mouth? The best answer is Jesus. 
It's a choice we make, and it has to be a daily and sometimes a moment-by-moment choice. Where if you are walking into a situation that you know that annoying person is in, and that you know are you most likely to get triggered, you know, maybe it's a family reunion or something, like, I don't know, but you know the environments where you get most triggered. Before you walk in, you say, God, I give you the reins to my tongue. Let me say only what you want me to say. And you give him that control. So you can speak the truth in love. Um, In chapter 4, we're not going to read it um, today. We'll read it tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next Sunday. Um, But James goes on and he makes a call for repentance. A confession and repentance. And he says to weep, mourn, and wail. And he doesn't mean like all the time we should be weeping, mourning, and wailing. But when he, he's saying that when we hear this message and when God convicts us of these things about our double-mindedness, about how we favor ourselves over other people or we favor our tribe over other tribes or about how we're double-tongued and double in our speech, that when God convicts us of these things, we need to weep, mourn, and wail. We need to repent of it. We can't just be like, oh yeah, okay, I push probably change that. We need to be convicted. And so I just I just want to end and I'm I'm gonna pray, but I don't I don't know what it is for you. If it's the favoritism, if it's a double tongue, if it's the you know what God spoke to you, maybe it was that, that line about how you speak about yourself, you know, like what it is, but confess it to God, okay? And we have different ways that you can confess. Um, where you can put physical action to what's going through your head. You can write prayers and put them up in these prayer bowls. And if you fold them, they stay anonymous. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. If you fold them, no one will read them. Okay? It's just between you and God. If you lead them unfolded, I will read it and I'll pray for you. You don't have to sign it. You can leave it unfolded and still be anonymous. Okay? We also have back here an altar. Where you can confess things. Um, I'll stand back there if you want someone to confess to and tell you that you're forgiven. I will be back there. You don't have to confess to me. You can also go straight to the altar. And if you want to burn something, there's a little burn. A burn bowl. And you can light it and just give it up to God. Alright? I know different things kind of help different people process. Maybe you just want to be like, God, I've been holding those reins, and you just want to burn it and give it up to him. But we all need to get better in this. Because we live in a culture now that does not uphold respecting one another. We live in a culture where we applaud people for how good they are at tearing down others. And we have to, the church needs to be the first place where that changes. If we want to see your family get better, you want to see this country, nation get better, it starts with us. Let's pray. God, I thank you. For what you say about us. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I thank you that you trust us to lead. And that you give us gifts. And you equip us. God, I thank you for how you speak to us about our worth. And you speak belief into us. And God, I pray that we will believe your words about ourselves. And I pray that we will believe them about other people too. God, I pray um, that that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit will speak loudly to us when we're showing favoritism. I pray, God, that you would give us the kind of strong faith to be generous. 
God, I pray that you will take the reins of our tongues and that we will remember to give it to you. Because you, you will let us take them back if we want to. God, I pray that you will show us Sometimes we're not even aware of our negative speech, God. It just seems so normal. We're not even aware. Show us where our negative speech is. And show us the results of it. God, God, we pray that we won't self-deceive ourselves about what the effects of our negative speech are. And God, I pray that you will reveal to us everywhere and every time we have selfish ambition and we try to cloak it under the name of helping others. God, I just pray. I don't want to be a a church of that kind of hypocrisy. And I don't want to be a person of that kind of hypocrisy. But I I also know I don't have the power to change my own heart and my own tongue. And so I surrender them to you. God, we surrender our hearts and our tongues to you. Conform us more and more to your image. And may it be your good presence that comes through us into our families, into our workplaces, into our schools. May it not be our presence, but it be your presence, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.